Um, there is going to be a team of six of us that are leaving on Thursday for Japan. And I've not been, well, I shouldn't say I've not been to that part of the world. I've been to that part of the world, but I've not, not been to Japan itself. And we have been supporting a ministry that is doing church planting in Japan. Uh, they have been there for about 12, 13 years. We've been supporting them almost for that many years. And uh, so I would, uh, I, I would just really covet your prayers as the six of us go over to see that ministry, to, to meet our brothers and our new brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, it is a tough field to preach to. And one of the reasons why I want you to think about this, one of the reasons why it's so difficult is because they don't have your typical felt needs that a lot of ministries are able to, to generate an audience with. So when we travel to Nicaragua, right, Steve, when we travel to Nicaragua and they say, hey, we've got good health care. You need to come. Man, people come from all over the place. Man, we need this. We don't have this. We, so when we go to Uganda and when we go, even when we go to Mexico, it's, we've got all these great things and who would like to come? And when we go to Japan, we just have the gospel. That's all we have. So anyone want to come and, and hear that they're sinners and that they're on their way to hell and without, without Jesus and understanding who he is, but we don't have, like, they have everything else they need. They don't even know that they have a need for Jesus, and it's a complicated field. And I'm so grateful for those that started Mustard Seed Fellowship years ago to reach out to that part of the world. And right now, there are two churches um, that are beginning to grow, that are taking place, that are taking root there. And we've never been over, and in one, because it's, they don't have the, can you bring 15 people over so we can do a VBS? It doesn't work like that. But there still are tremendous needs. There are about 17 missionaries that are working there. And so we're going over um, to learn more about that. I'll be actually teaching one time at the church in Osaka. Um, I'm doing the book of Revelation, so that ought to be fun in another language. And uh, I got, I, he told me, he said, you've got an hour to teach on how to understand the book of Revelation, but don't forget that half of that time will be used for translation. I thought, oh, 30 minutes Revelation, that'll be easy to do. The rest of the week, we're going to be working with our team that is over there, and we're going to be um, supporting them and encouraging them. Uh, we're, I'm taking Natalie Ambrose and Patty Broadway and Ashley Moore. They're going, and they're going to be involved in running like a, a VBS just for the 17 children of these missionaries that are over there as well. And then Brady Moore and then another friend of mine who's a pastor in Phillipsburg, Missouri, who one of their people is on site in Japan. He's going to be going with us and would love for you to pray for that ministry. Um, there's just seems like there's a lot that is happening right now, start of the school year, uh, 9-11 um, and the 15th year remembering that. Um, so why, why don't we just begin this time by just going before God and saying, hey, we, we really need your help to center our thoughts and to prepare us to hear your word this morning. So let's pray together. God. Um, probably the, the easiest way to say it, and it just seems so simple, we need you. We need you for so many reasons. And that God, we're, we're probably a lot more like those people in Japan who, uh, who have, even though we complain about it, a good health system, best in the world. God, for, for most of us, our, like our needs are cared for or can be cared for. And so it's easy for us to be lulled into a sense of uh, peace. And if we haven't found peace with you, then there is no peace. 
And so God, I pray that especially as we deal with this text today, this bizarre story from Matthew's gospel, that, that God, we would hear what you are saying to us about the incredible freedom that we have because of who Christ is and then the obligation that comes from the fact that we have the truth. And so, Father, I pray that you would free us from guilt and that you would bind us to gratitude, that, God, you would give us a hope, a profound hope that would simultaneously move us to serve, that our weekends would be filled with more than just rest and relaxation and play, that, God, our money would be used for more than just the gratification of our own wants, that, God, we would live in the shadow of the cross, and again, not from guilt, but profound gratefulness. That is my prayer. And I can't do that, Father. You know I cannot do that, even with a carefully worded, articulated sermon. I can point out the truth, but only your spirit can bring the change. Change us. And all God's people said, amen. What you just said, by the way, which was, so let it be. Just so you're aware of what you just said. I just asked for God to give us our hearts so that we might be changed by this text. And I tricked you. I said, and all God's people said, and all of you said it, amen, which means so let it be. So here it goes. Are you ready? Um, what I want to do today is I want to look at this text from, um, Luke's go- or from Matthew's gospel. It's a very interesting story. It's found in Matthew chapter 17. It's only a few verses. I want you to turn to Matthew 17. We're going to look at verses 24 through 27. And what I want to do is I want to talk about the story. And then we're going to look at the moral of the story. But we'll spend the majority of our time this morning since the, not just that the text is small, but that the idea is simple. The idea is profoundly simple. Therefore, I don't need to clutter it up with complicated jargon. In the end, we get to look at it, and then you and I get to hear the weight of that truth, and then you and I get to decide for the moments that we have together whether or not we're going to leave in response to what the text has told us. So here is the story from Matthew's account. Again, Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 24. And when they came to Capernaum, The collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and they said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. I'll explain some of these few things in a moment here. Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when, he, and, and when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. End of story. Matthew's the only one that tells this. Mark doesn't include it, Luke doesn't include it, John doesn't include it. Matthew is the only one, maybe because Matthew's a tax collector. 
Maybe because Matthew has an, an interest in, maybe because Matthew's audience, which this book would have been written 20 to 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to a Jewish audience, maybe because Matthew writing to a Jewish audience, maybe many of them tax collectors, he's wanting them to, to see this side of Jesus who really seems to be, I don't know if I wanna say in favor, this is a complicated in favor of taxation text actually. What do we see in this text? First of all, we notice that Peter and Jesus are in Capernaum. That would have been the place where Jesus and Peter and the rest of the disciples did the majority of their ministry. Although he was from Nazareth, although he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem, although that he went down when he was a little kid all the way to Egypt, Jesus spent the majority of his time on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee around the city of Capernaum. Therefore, where he resided would be where he would pay that tax. And the tax collectors of that particular area know this, and so they go to Peter and they ask the question, does your, and it's, it's stated in such a way, there's almost like an expected, well, he at least should. Does he not pay the tax? Peter and commentators, I don't know how they know the answer to this question, Peter quickly does respond, yes, he does. Commentators talk about the fact that Peter was rather presumptuous. They bring back his uh, ability to speak without thinking. Listen, I, I really, I think one, one preacher said it best. I think that when we get to heaven, Peter's going to be the first one that's got a real beef with a lot of preachers who've been dragging him through the mud for years. Peter's always the one to kind of, to say something quick. He's always the one to kind of get in over his head. I would even argue this, I, I don't know why Peter said yes. Sure, may, there might be a possibility that he was in a, a, a conflicted situation and just wanted to appease his hearers. Peter is known to do that. Maybe he said yes without checking because he's been in Jesus' ministry for a while. Maybe he's seen Jesus pay the tax. We don't know. I don't know if Peter's being presumptuous or not. I don't know if Peter has seen the tax or not, but he says yes he walks away from that encounter after, in essence, obligating Jesus to pay this tax that every Jewish person was required to pay for, to, to keep up the, the responsibilities that happened in and around the temple. By the way, the Pharisees said that we should pay that tax or that they should pay that tax. Pharisees said, yes, as Jewish people, everyone who's a Jew should actually pay that tax. The Essenes, which was kind of a, uh, a relegated rebel group, okay, they were the ones that were frustrated with taxation completely, okay? Can you, uh, can you sympathize with them? And the Essenes said, no, the temple should be run off of offerings and did not pay the tax. They refused to pay it. So you've got different attitudes about this. Peter obligates Jesus either presumptuously or because he's seen him do it in the past. He walks into the house, and I think it's interesting that Matthew records that before Peter does anything, before Peter either doesn't mention this or whatever, first, he walks in and Jesus says to him first, and he wants Peter to understand, again, notice how the story of this text is all about who Jesus is. He says to him, like he's been listening to the conversation, hey, Peter, I just want to ask you a question. The kings of a nation, who do they tax, others or their own children? In essence, who has a responsibility and an obligation and who doesn't when it comes to taxation? The king's children or the king's subjects? And 
Peter knows the answer. Well, yeah, no, 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 no. The, the, the king's children, the king's son would never have to pay the tax. The kings tax others, not their own family. And Jesus, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Can you hear where he's going with this? Can you see where he's going with this? Yeah. God is the king. I am his son. The temple is the location. I don't have to pay this tax. Just so you know. Just so if anybody has a question about this. If anybody wonders, you need to recognize who I am. I am the king's son. Therefore, there is no obligation that I have that will compel me or force me to pay the tax. I am, in fact, in the text, it even says this word, right? Then this, look at verse uh, 26 near the end. Then the sons are what? The sons are free. The sons are free. I don't have to. Have you ever met a child that actually lives in circumstances where they have privilege? You ever met one of those kids? They walk in and they act like they what? Like they own the place. You know my dad owns this place, right? You know my dad, they just have, it's hard not to. It is really hard not to. Wherever a child goes and the dad or the mom or the family has some kind of exerting force, some kind of influence, some kind of authority, the children act as though they can run the place. And Jesus is pointing out, here is the truth. I am the king's son and there is no obligation for me to pay that tax. And then he continues on and this is the moral of the story. But to keep offense from taking place, literally to keep them from being offended, We'll pay it. Now, I find it interesting how he pays it, right? I mean, there are normal miracles and then there are bizarre ones. And I don't mean bizarre in the sense that the supernatural, I believe every miracle is by definition an acting of supernatural, right? Like Moses goes up to the Red Sea, waves his arms or whatever. I, I keep getting into the Charlton Heston thing, does this, taps the water, whatever, right? And the waters go apart. I mean, that's a miracle. And they walk through on dry land, okay? There are some bizarre miracles, though, that aren't just Jesus touches and a leper is healed or Jesus calls and Lazarus comes back to life. But this one's a little different. Can you feel it? Go, I mean, I know Peter used to using a net. It's the only time the word fish hook is ever found in the New Testament. Go and take a hook, because we're only gonna need one, and I want you to, to grab it. Theologians, church commentators act like rabbis in this instance. I I read a number of articles about whether or not the fish found the coin or whether or not the coin somehow was miraculously placed in the fish's mouth. And I just thought, oh, yet once again, an exercise in futility. Does it matter? First of all, it's interesting that the, the, the fish actually has this shekel in its mouth, which is different than the two drachma tax. It's enough for both of them, and that's exactly what the question was, and that's exactly what happened. It's like Jesus is pointing out, I don't have to, but I will to save the offense, and God will provide. God will provide. Peter does exactly what he says, throws in a hook, catches a fish, opens up his mouth, and there's the coin. Peter's got to be walking away from this going, okay, that was weird, right? That was strange. Didn't see that one coming. And Jesus proves his point. Yes, I am free. But free from what? 
Yes, I am obligated. Jesus seems to be obligated. Well, I thought you were free. Yes, I am so free, I am now obligated. Is that how you think of freedom? So free that now you're obligated? That's what I want to talk about this morning. As we, as we move, I mean, the story is pretty much that. Jesus is free. His, his followers are going to be free. I mean, there's a lot of interesting kind of implications that since Jesus is offering this freedom to not pay the temple tax, doesn't just, not just him because he's the son of God, but anyone who might be a son of God. You wonder sometimes if what Jesus is pointing out is the fact that there really shouldn't be a tax for this. What we really should have is a, um, an expectation of a response, a grateful response to what's going on. For, for example, when we take up an offering for, um, uh, for the Gideons, does that feel like a tax for you or does it feel like a joy to you? Like when we, when we hand out the plates, is it like, ah, or is it like, man, I am so glad I get to contribute to kingdom type things. And if I can just be brutally honest, I sometimes feel like both. Do you know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one? I mean, it's, it's interesting how freedom and obligation dovetail together. And I just couldn't, speaking of dovetailing, I was so intrigued when I came up with this title, Freedom is an Obligation, and then looked on the calendar and went, huh, September 11th. Okay, that's weird. Divinely weird. Principle number one that I want us to look at as an implication of the story that Jesus told. Implication number one is this, that there is freedom, and freedom is always found in the truth. There's no freedom in a lie. There's no freedom in a story. There's no freedom in a myth. There is no freedom in, in false encouragement. There is only freedom in the truth. And that's why it is so critical, it is so important that we speak the truth to one another. That we talk about the truth when it comes about paths of forgiveness. We live in a day and an age, um, and I don't know what other ages were like because this is the only one I've ever lived in. But we live in a day and an age when not telling the truth can actually be seen as nice or appropriate. Not telling the truth about people's circumstances or situations. But let's just not mention it and let's just go ahead. We will quickly capitulate. We will quickly give in to other people's circumstances to avoid ever having a real conversation about the truth. In essence, it would be Jesus quickly going to the, well, hey, listen, Peter, I'm not wanting to explain to you who I am and why I don't have to. Just go catch a fish and pay it. Notice Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't just deal with the situation. He deals with the roots that exist within that situation, which is this. I need you to know before you go fishing, I need you to know before you commit to that obligation that you've already made for us, before you do any of that, I need you to know the truth, Peter. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do this. Freedom is found in the truth. Second Peter 2.19 says this. This is kind of an interesting text because we usually think of freedom meaning I can do anything. If I'm completely free, then I can do anything. But actually the Bible doesn't describe freedom like that. And so we need to deal with the truth about freedom. Second Peter 2.19 actually says this. For whoever, for whatever, for whatever overcomes, 
For whatever has victory over a person, to that he or she is enslaved. And so it's, it's good for us to recognize that before we just go out and try to live in light of the grace of God, that everyone, everyone, no, no matter what circumstances they come from, no matter what situation they find themselves in, everyone who is overcome by something is in fact enslaved to that thing. And I love this, is that it is so typical for us to walk around rattling our chains and yet profess that we are free. What, what, what does that mean? It, it just means, I just know a lot of people that talk about the freedom that they have to do X or Y, the freedom that they have to live any way that they want, the freedom that they have, and they use it as an opportunity to be enslaved to the temptations, to the struggles, to the selfishness of their own lives. And, and you and I look, and, and we can tell the rattling of the chains predicts it. We can tell they're not free. But there can be, especially in our culture, there can be this illusion of freedom and it becomes so critical for us to recognize from this story that Jesus, before he acts, speaks the truth. I am a son and I am free. Now, now let's live in light of that. So 2 Peter says, whatever overcomes a person, whatever is your driving force, whatever is your compulsion is in fact what you are a slave to and some good time spent asking, where am I enslaved? Where am I compelled to act? Where am I forced to behave? And that's when you can begin to realize whether or not you truly are free. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide, if you remain, if you stay, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Here is your said. If you're my disciples, you'll listen to me, you'll follow me, you'll obey me. Wow, that sounds, sounds constricting. It is. It sounds like you're, you're, you're enslaved to something, and it, it is. And what, what am I a slave to? To the truth. And then in that truth, you will actually find genuine freedom. So Jesus says, John 8, verses 31 and 32. It's interesting that Jesus puts it, or that Paul puts it this way, living in light of what Jesus Christ accomplished to the church in Galatia. In, 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 the, in the province of Galatia, Paul says this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to this. Here's another biblical truth. So the truth will set us free, and we will be free indeed. And this freedom will actually bind us to the work and the purposes of Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Meaning this, Jim, here is how my life looked without Jesus. I was a slave to do whatever I wanted. I mean, if I had an urge, I was a slave, I had to do it. Now, I mean, it's not just that every sin I did immediately, but as I began to calculate things and as I began to weigh things out, what really drove me was my own passions and my own desires, my own wants. 
And I was free to do whatever I wanted, which made me a slave to do whatever I wanted. The problem with that is it doesn't line up with the truth. Here's the truth. Like, I'm not king of the world, so I really can't do whatever I want. Like, there are consequences. If I chose to live my life and all I had to do was just follow my own wants, I would quickly run into others and other obligations and other responsibilities, and I had to decide, am I going to live for myself or am I going to live for them? Am I going to do this or am I going to help them? Am I going to focus on my kingdom and my purposes? Now, here's the beauty of it. If your kingdom really is the kingdom of the world, if there is going to be no meeting that you and I will have with the creator of the universe, if truly it is, if everything is about you, if everything is about your happiness or your satisfaction, then the way that you're living lines up with the truth. Truly, I believe that. If there is no God and there, there is no rule and everything is relative and everything is pluralistic, then let's just keep living the way that we want. But what if that's not true? What if there is a God who made the world and made it in a certain way? And what if that God will demand that we give an account for how we spent our lives and our resources and our families and, and there will come a day where we will give an account. What if that is true? Well, if that's true, then I need to live in light of that truth. I mean, those people who understand um, the rules that exist in the world are able to, to use them for their own benefit. I mean, this is what science is all about. Science studies the way in which the world works. That they want to study so that what? Not that they can just manipulate it, but that they can use it for our own betterment. I'm actually grateful that someone figured out how the world works so that we could produce something like this. So just right now, if I wanted to, I could call Japan. I'm about, on Thursday, I'm gonna get on an airplane. I'm gonna fly to Japan. You realize how crazy that is? You can't fly. I, I know we can't fly, but here's what we've learned about gravity. And here's what we've learned about aerodynamics. And here's what we've learned about thrust. And here's what we've learned about, we've learned about all of these things. And now, in light of the truth, guess what we can do? We can fly to Japan. Guess what we can do? We can build big buildings. We can, we can do all of these things. What? Because we've studied the truth. We understand how the world was made and we are responding to that and it has made us free. And Jesus says there's a spiritual reality about that too. I, it's easy for me to see it in an alcoholic. Someone who, I mean, genuinely struggles with alcohol. I just, it's so easy for me to see he's a slave to that or she's a slave to that. It's so easy for me to see to someone who is really struggling with like a pornography addiction and just notice the slavery that exists. Can't you tell you're a slave? Yeah, I just, I'm ruining my family. I'm ruining my own life. I can't, I mean, it's just, it's just a mess. I'm tormented in my own mind. Those are easy. But you do realize that it, it, it continues. It goes much deeper than that. Here's the real question. Can you still see it in yourself? Do you still operate from the compulsion to do whatever you want? Literally, I want you to think about this statement and the beauty of finding freedom in the truth. The statement, I don't have to. I don't have to. That's true, actually. You know, I don't have to go to church every Sunday. I really don't. I don't have to give. I, mean, I, don't, I don't have to give. I don't have to be a member of this church, you know. 
I don't have to. When you hear those things, now I might have really kind of struck a chord maybe with a few of those. How do I sound? Inspiring? Imagine if I just lived my life doing the I don't have to speech. And genuinely, I don't have to, you know. I really don't have to. You can't make me, you know. Okay, how old are you? I don't have to, you know. How old? No, I'm serious. How old are you? That's a great question. See, sometimes we we look at the truth we don't have to, and we marshal that truth again for our own purposes, and we become enslaved to something else. Truly, for those people who exercise their freedom and don't have to go to church every Sunday, they're totally free from the biblical community that could have been created. They're totally free to, to literally like choose the Sundays in which they come. Ah, life groups today, I better go to church. And they get to live in that. And, 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 and literally, it's biblical community on their own terms. But by the way, they'll give an account for that. And, and they don't have the freedom of like genuine relationships with one another. They're free from that too. For those people who go, you know, I don't, want, I don't have to give. I don't have to give. You know, I'm free not to give. Yeah. Then you never experience the joy of giving to something that is better than you. never experience the sacrifice. You never experience the Holy Spirit saying, I knew I, I, or I want you to trust me and I want you to experience the joy of trusting me and the, the joy of investing. I mean, you literally, for eternity, if, the, if Jesus is true and he says simple things like store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where nothing destroys, where, where, where it is this beautiful thing, store up for yourself there and you, well, I don't have to, you know, Jesus, I don't have to. And Jesus would look at you and you know what he would say? You're right. How old are you? And you have the freedom of always being a taker and never really being a giver. You have that freedom too. Like you have the, you, I don't have to forgive them, you know. I don't have to forgive them. What they did to me, I don't have to. Well, that one's a little more complicated. Jesus says if you want God to forgive you, you do, by the way. But you know, I guess if what you're saying is like you're an American and we live in a free country and you can do whatever you want, yeah. And, and then you experience the freedom of, of maybe not being forgiven yourself. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. I actually love this when, when people say things to me, um, you know, you really don't have to do that. As, as a church, we, we, we help somebody. You know, you really don't have to do that. You know what I love saying? That's a complicated statement because on the one hand, you're right. I know we don't need to do this but we really have to do this. We really have to do, no, 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 I'm serious. You don't have to do that. You don't have to be that forgiving. You don't have to be that kind. You don't have to be that generous. And I get, I hear what you're saying. You're right, we don't have to, but we really have to. Do you understand what I'm talking about? That's what Jesus is talking about in this text. I know I don't have to, but I have to. See, there were tax collectors. It's interesting. Jesus isn't afraid to offend people. And, and yet he's not just going around trying to offend people. Jesus is, this is, here's an overstatement or an understatement, understatement, Jesus is really smart, okay, perfectly smart. 
And it seems like to those people who, who are acting childish, Jesus has no problem to offend. I mean, even in Matthew's gospel. Did you know the Pharisees were offended when you said that? Yeah, that's why I said it. Did you know that back in your synagogue when you made that claim about yourself, they were really offended? Yeah, that's why I said it. And yet here, interestingly enough, Jesus says about the Pharisees and about religious leaders, about religious people, yeah, I offended them on purpose. To the tax collectors, Jesus says, like, I don't want them to be offended by this. I don't want to get into an argument over taxation because there's something bigger that I want to deal with here. Pay the tax. Don't have to, but I have to. And so do you see the problem? The problem is that when you find freedom in the truth and you try to use it for your own purposes, you're just a slave again. And not the good kind of slave, a slave to the truth, a a person who finds both freedom and enslavement to the truth. I love Peter's comment, for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved, I'm so glad Jesus has overtaken me. And I might even say this, if you still operate your life for your glory and for your purposes, then I don't know if Jesus has overtaken you. I don't know if that's happened yet. I'm not, not the final judge, by the way, so you don't have to worry what Jim's think, Jim thinks. But I would ask the question, has Jesus overtaken your life? Has Jesus overtaken the specific aspects of your life? Whatever area that you struggle in, has Jesus overtaken that? Or are you king? Well, the truth is you're not king, and that day will come. Principle number two, number two is actually, let's talk a little bit more about the truth about freedom. The truth about freedom. 1 Corinthians 9.19 says this. So what, is, what does it mean to actually be, be free? Well, we've already seen what? That, that freedom gives us a new obligation. A, a concept that we really wrestle with. We even talk about it in terms of love. Love is requiring no expectation on another. That's not true. Love is not being obligated and just doing it out of the, own, the kindness of your own heart. That is not true. That's not what love is. It is for love's sake that Jesus came to this earth. That Jesus was, in fact, obligated for the will of the glory of the Father to surrender his life. And the, the truth about freedom is, in fact, we are obligated. That there is a, we sang it, there is a debt that we owe. So you're telling me we gotta be good? No, 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 see that's the beauty of it. Us being good, us, us trying to win God's favor cannot be done. That's not the kind of owe, that is not the kind of obligation. First Corinthians 9, 19, look how the Apostle Paul teaches this powerful truth about freedom. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Slave, literally the word there, slave to all. That I might win more of them. See, what the Apostle Paul was able to do was completely give up his rights, his hopes, his dreams because there was something that he wanted more. I love this. Freedom is the ability to do whatever you want. You like that? Think about it. We're gonna wrestle with this for a second. Freedom is the ability to do whatever you want. I I would argue that is true. 
And, and what, what Jesus Christ has done is he has changed my wants. He has changed my wants. And, and by the way, it wasn't, just so we're clear, it wasn't Jim was 12 and the day before I was baptized in November of 1981, I was this evil terror. I was actually a pretty good kid. I'd never said a bad word. Literally, never said a bad word. I called people Mr. and Mrs. By the, and then I used their last name. Okay? I was really respectful as a little boy. Talked a lot. Did. Talked a lot. Got in trouble at school for talking. But then I was profoundly sorry and would cry in front of my teachers to the point where my teachers would feel bad for getting me in trouble. And, and then I gave my life to Jesus Christ and, and I had a different kind of indwelling of the Spirit. And all of a sudden, I, I, I didn't have to live for myself in the same way that I did before. When I gave my life to Jesus Christ, it wasn't magic. It wasn't like all of a sudden I never had lust or I never had pride or I never had greed or I never had selfishness. That's not true, actually. I, I still do to this day. But now I actually have a freedom from it. I have a freedom from just living that way. Now when I live that way, I can recognize I live that way and I, I, I need to apologize. I can't believe I live that way. I got this incredible freedom. I, it, it's not hard for me. I have to do it a lot. Like, I'm really sorry for what I just did there. Will you please forgive me? Like, I want this relationship to work, and I know that I'm the one that's causing them. I feel like I'm in my marriage conversations. I know I'm the problem in this relationship. Will you please bear with me? I'm free to say that. Like, in Christ, I'm, I'm free to apologize. I'm free to ask forgiveness. I'm free to admit. People think it's hard for me to admit that I'm wrong. It is easy for me to admit that I'm wrong. And you wanna know Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. He changes my want to. Paul says it, even though I'm free, I can do whatever I want. I have made myself a servant for a greater purpose. First Peter 2.16 says it this way. Live as people who are free. And then he continues on. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but as living servants of God but as living servants of God. So we, we move from the I don't have to to this statement here. I wanna close with this. But I want to. But I have to, because I want to. That's the Christian response to life. So we, we, we've got some opportunities that are coming up. By the way, you don't have to go to every one. You don't even need to feel bad about going to every one. I, I do think, though, that to never go to any is a problem. Like, I'm actually free to follow the Lord's leading and to give when appropriate and to attend when appropriate. And to, so the truth is there's amazing freedom, but if you never have obligation and if you never have compulsion, then we never have what we're looking for most in society. 15 years ago, catastrophe hit New York City and people were in tremendous need I watched so many YouTube videos lately about the stories of survivors and the stories of families that didn't have survivors can you imagine those responders I don't have to go in there you know I don't have to 
I don't have to go in there, you know. I can, I can, I can just stay out here. I don't have to. I, I'm, I'm an American. I, 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 you, don't, you can't make me do that. How many of you would be proud if that was your son or daughter? Like, listen, we may understand if that was the case of someone. And, and amazingly enough, I bet you there were a lot of people that did the I don't have to and did nothing. You don't think there were those? You don't think there were people that looked around at that mess and said, I don't have to and didn't, I just don't know any stories of them because we don't tell stories like that. You know who we tell stories about? People who understand that freedom is an obligation and people who understand they're willing to give their lives to that obligation and we celebrate them rightfully, do we not? Do we not remember, do we not say we will never forget because we look at that instance and we realize not only are you free, you are so free, you are rightly obligated and you will put yourself in harm's way even if it means your life so that others might be rescued. Wow. I'd be so proud if that's how one of my sons gave his life. I would be so proud. You think it's any different spiritually? You think that, like, spiritually, like, I mean, we all get that. Love the fire department in New York City. Love the police department in New York City. Love those who've served our country. Love those things. We do. We genuinely and rightfully love those things, and we should. That is a natural human, God-designed response in us to be inspired by those who forego their rights because they've got a greater obligation. But is that not true spiritually? Is that not where Jesus Christ is calling you to him? And now all of a sudden you do recognize there are two basic responses to Jesus' death and sacrifice that he gave freely because he was obligated to the glory of God. One is guilt. If you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you say something like this, I can't believe I can't believe I did that to him. I can't believe he took that for me. I can't believe that, that that is what he had to do because of my sin. I can't believe. I can't believe I did that to him. If that's how you look at it, then you're always operated by guilt. And I would say you have not experienced the true freedom and the true truth that Jesus wants you to experience. That's why this morning I'm not trying to give you guilt. It's not guilt. Guilt will never motivate it's gratefulness. The other response when we look at Jesus' death and sacrifice that he freely gave is this. I can't believe he did that for me. I can't believe he did that for me. See, that's gratefulness. That's a life that when I look at what others, <laughs> the obligation that I just feel naturally with others. Where does that come from? As you may know, um, my wife and I have taken into our home a young man who is Muslim by faith, Saudi Arabian by uh, nationality. He suffers from sickle cell anemia, which means he goes through some pretty painful times in his life, some pretty difficult experiences. And because he doesn't like just going to the hospital, he waits until it gets kind of complicated and actually even late in the day. And I just need to confess to you, when he says to me at nine or 10 o'clock at night, I need you to take me to the ER, I'm like, seriously, dude? Like, why didn't we deal with this earlier in the day? Okay, let's go. And the other day I, I took him because it was kind of a rough time and we're sitting in the ER and to my, 
I don't know, understandable shame. He could tell I was put out. It's almost one o'clock in the morning and I'm tired. I got an early morning the next day. He, fi- he finally gets the morphine necessary to get the pain alleviated. And I'm driving home and I'm beginning to tell him, hey, we need to be more responsible about when I'm giving him this speech. And he, in his morphined state, says, sometimes do you wish I not live with you? And it hit me. And I said, no, I've never, I've never wished that you don't live with me. I said, you need to understand, I mean, it's hard sometimes. The obligation that Andrew and I feel to you is hard sometimes, but I'm really glad you live with us. Like, I'm really glad that I was able to be with you tonight. Truth is, yeah, I'm frustrated too because it's one o'clock in the morning. And I still think we need to find a better way to handle this. (laughs) But I would do this all day long for you because you need to know Jesus. I don't need you to think better of me at all. I hope that you understand where that obligation comes from. It's why we go to Nicaragua and Japan. It's why we get involved in concert with the conscience. It's why we forgive one another. It's why we give. It's why we be involved in biblical community. Not because we have to, but because we have to. Do you understand what I'm saying? Live in that light. God bless. See you Wednesday night.